Today we're going to talk about lifelong high performance. My name is Tim Francis. I'm a varsity athlete turned entrepreneur. I've had the privilege for nearly 20 years now to be around high performers, whether it's in athletics, through my very own sports psychologist, or around top performing entrepreneurs who've built incredible companies. I'm excited to share with you the insights I've gained on my journey in this episode and through this podcast. Let's dig in. My favorite part of Atomic Habits is how much he talks about the importance of momentum. My good friend Jimmy Jays has the best quote I've ever heard around achievement. That quote is, we oftentimes overestimate the importance of goals and underestimate the importance of momentum. This is a parallel quote to the idea that we often overestimate what we can get done in a day, but underestimate what we can get done in a year. I love the book that talks about momentum called One Small Step. In that book, the author, who is a uh, PhD doctor, talks about how the idea of Kaizen, 1% per day, is oftentimes a secret to success. A huge breakthrough for me was working with my psychologist, who's a sports psychologist who's worked with many professional athletes in baseball, basketball, um, golf, uh, CEO executives, and uh, other high-stakes roles like surgeons. And uh, my expectation was, hey, if I have great habits, great routines, if I set up my environment for excellence, if I take care of my internal issues and frustrations, then I should really have A days every single day. She said to me, you know, Tim, that's great that that's what you want, but the reality is most of us have B days every single week with A moments. And by adjusting my expectations that way, I think it really actually allowed me to have, believe it or not, more A days. By really kind of relaxing my standards with myself, I didn't reach the end of the day feeling angry with myself as much anymore. If I didn't get everything done on my to-do list, it's okay. I can get it done tomorrow. And if I didn't nail a presentation quite the way that I knew that I could, again, I could do better next time. And the irony is that that allowed me to relax a little bit in life. And by relaxing a little bit in life, it actually allowed my best performances to come through. And lo and behold, more A days. So I think that as high performers, we want to constantly think of ourselves as having gold medal performances day in and day out. The reality is that NFL athletes and hockey players and professionals in any line, they are not peak competing every single day. In fact, they actually design and purposely have off-peak times in their schedule as well. I got my degree in kinesiology at the University of Alberta, and I myself was a college athlete. In that, we learned about the idea of periodization. Periodization is the idea of creating periods in our day, week, month, quarter, and even in a, an entire four-year cycle in the case of Olympians, where we have varying levels of intensity. And what was found is that by cycling through four different phases, we actually get the greatest possible training effect. So the training effect is simply when we get smarter, stronger, faster, and have better endurance. So to maximize our training effect, that can apply to both physical improvement, but also mental improvement. 
It's not actually while we're doing the reps that we get better at a speech or looking at financials or coming up with nifty headlines for our marketing. It's actually when we're sleeping that we get enough, if we get enough REM sleep, that it's in those REM phases that we see short-term memory converted into long-term memory and new neuronal pathways being created. And so it's actually the rest periods where we can see some of our greatest gains. Obviously, if you start practicing at four o'clock, you're not gonna see those gains when you finish practice at six o'clock. However, if you take a little bit of a longer view and say, how good was I at that on Monday compared to how good was I at it on Friday, you might actually see an improvement. Now, I think even more so is if you said, how was I on the first of the month compared to the 30th of the month, you would see the greatest improvements of all. And that probably would create a significantly exciting outcome for us. So periodization in the basic broad sense is the idea that we have microcycles, mesocycles, and macrocycles. A mesocycle will oftentimes be one week. A uh, mesocycle will typically be a month, and then a macrocycle could be a quarter. Now, you can uh, adjust those time frames based on when you need to peak and the style of the business or activity that you've got. So a very typical periodization cycle would be a uh, four-week uh, mesocycle of four microcycles. And the microcycle would uh, get more and more intense and then have a crash week and then a recovery week. So typically our peak week will be the third week. And so typically the first week of that mesocycle is going to be about 65% intensity. The second week is going to be like 75-80% intensity. That third week is going to be 105% intensity, literally to exhaustion every workout. By that end of the week, by the time you're doing the final workout or the final work session, you probably can't even finish it. And that's what 105 or 110% looks like. And then the week after that, the fourth week of the month or of the mesocycle, that is where we're at like 30%, 40%, something like that. It takes actually only about 30% of our typical work volume um, to maintain what we've got. So if you're ever going on vacation, you actually can go on vacation. And if you only hit the resort gym one of the days that you're there, that might be 30% of what you normally do when you're back in your home normal routine. So I think that readjusting our expectations and thinking in terms of like Olympians, micro, meso, and macro cycles, bringing in the idea of 1% improvements and creating a roadmap to win, not in the next 10 minutes, not in the next 10 days, but more so in like the next 10 months or the next 10 years, that I think is vastly, vastly more productive and really adjusts our expectations accordingly. For those of you that know me, you know that I had an illness in December of 2010 that lasted for three months until March of 2011. 
I had lost a lot of money in the stock market crash. I'm sorry, the real estate crash of 2008. I was $200,000 upside down. I had no money in the bank and I had no way to make money. So all the stress of that really piled on and I ended up developing a stress-related illness called erythema nodosum. And it was a swelling that started in my ankles and moved up my legs and into my hips and eventually into my elbows. And it was so painful that I couldn't stand and I couldn't walk. So to move back in with my parents for full-time care for three months. And basically the only way I could get around the house is by rolling around in an office chair. Um, it, the, the pain was so bad that I couldn't even stand in a shower to bathe myself. And so I had to choose between either sitting on a stool in the shower and kind of bathing myself that way while seated or laying in bed and my mom giving me a sponge bath. So I had a lot of time to think. And that was actually one of the greatest gifts of my life was that period when I was nearly bankrupt. Uh, my business had failed and I was unable to walk. Like this might be it. Like I may never have the massive breakthrough that I'm dreaming that I would have one day. I might, in fact, have to live with the no ability to walk for the rest of my life. I may never be the college athlete again that I once was. And that was incredibly um, challenging, like to come to terms with that. And I really realized that I was living in what Dr. David Wolf calls the closed-ended version of reality. I was living in this space that, hey, I just desperately am hoping that one day I will make enough money that it never is a problem again. And it's the closed-ended version of reality is that, you know, hoping that at one point I'll be able to close this off and never have to worry about it, never have to worry about it again. We see this everywhere in human psychology. If I just have the right mate, I'll be happily ever after. If I just have the right body, then I'll be acceptable. So this closed-ended version of reality um, is what our human brain hopes for. We hope that it's true. We hope that it can happen. But the fact of the matter is life is always evolving. The only constant, as the expression goes, is change. And so for me, I had to come to terms with the fact that I would probably be working hard at my craft for the rest of my life. It's around that time that I think it's a Confucian quote that says, before enlightenment, carry water and chop wood. After enlightenment, carry water and chop wood. There's another expression. Um, it goes something like, um, we are not entitled to the fruit, only to the labor thereof, meaning we may never ever get what it is that we hope for. We're only entitled to putting in the reps and doing the hard work and, and, and following the steps of the process. And so within that in mind, I, I came to terms with the reality that I, I needed to love the process. I had this constant loop in my head saying, okay, in 90 days from now, I'm going to have you know, 10 properties that each make me $1,000 a month, I'll make 10 grand a month, game over, I win. When in fact, first of all, <clears throat> the math on that doesn't even work out. But I'll, I'll put that to the side, which is a big leap. <laughs> but the, you know, the fact of the matter is that I had to love, I had to learn to love the process. 
So I, when, I had, when I asked myself the question, what would have to be true that I could be in this fight for the next decade or maybe forever, all of a sudden I realized, oh my God, like it's not going to be okay for me to work, you know, a 14, 15, 16 hour day and have, you know, an hour to eat and shower and never go out, never see friends, never date, never do anything. I, I can do that for 90 days, maybe even for a year. I can't do that for 20 years. I can't. And, and you know, when the pandemic hit in 2020, I actually, for a year and a half, I think it was, or close to two years, did not leave my apartment. I worked day in and day out, and it was an incredible period of productivity for me. Incredible. One of the greatest gifts. I can proudly say, and this may sound funny, and, 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 and I realized there was a lot of heartache during the pandemic. A lot of heartache. A lot of loss. A lot of difficulty. And I will tell you that in conjunction with all of that, I also made it unbelievably productive. I can confidently say that I did not waste the pandemic. So when I look back at that, that was two straight years, essentially, of staying in, if I remember correctly, zero dating, and just productivity day in, day out, working out. I actually set up a workout spot on my balcony uh, overlooking downtown Austin here, and ride my bike, lift weights, work. And that was it. That was my life. Work, workout, sleep. Work, workout, sleep for two straight, two straight years. And what, what I developed was absolutely incredible through that period. And could I have worked like that for 40, 50 years? I don't think so. Two years? Hell yeah. So my question to you is, as we kind of pull all of this together, what would have to be true for you to be able to sustain your commitment to excellence, your day in, day out, getting the reps in work that you could live with for the next 10 to 20 years. What does that look like? What balance would you need to have? What pace would you work at? What trade-offs would you be okay with? There's that kind of famous uh, book by Bonnie Ware, Regrets of the Dying. And this uh, nurse, Bonnie Ware, she, I believe she's in Australia, and she worked with terminal patients. And she got to talk to a lot of people in their final days to see how it was they were feeling, making them comfortable, and seeing what really mattered to them as they faced their own death. And the number one regret of the dying was not necessarily making more money, right? It was living a life truer to their own values. I know one of my values is to fulfill my potential in this lifetime. I've oftentimes heard people say, oh my goodness, why are you working so hard? Like, you can't take it with you when you die. And I think when folks say that to me, they misunderstand why it is that I'm so passionate about my path. They think that it's because I want to make as much money as possible. I know that it's because I want to make good on the handshake I've made 
with the divine, with the creator, that I will maximize the talents and gifts and circumstances that I was gifted. I had the privilege, right after I got my degree at University of Alberta, to actually work in the Women's Federal Penitentiary. Minimum, medium, maximum security inmates. We had the whole solitary confinement and everything. In fact, my very first shift uh, working solo, like without a supervisor, once I'd kind of finished training, was maximum security night. And two inmates came up from solitary confinement, one guard on each side of them, so four guards plus a lead guard for five in total. And the lead guard looks at me, looks at the inmates, gives the hand signal. The guards unshackle the ankles of the two inmates, take off the handcuffs of the two inmates, and then looks at me and says, all right, Recreation Officer Francis, it's time to recreate. That was an incredible moment. And over the months that followed, I had the opportunity to see really uh, the lives of many, many people who were significantly more disadvantaged than me. Many of them were born with disadvantages I would never face in my lifetime, such as fetal alcohol syndrome, because their mothers drank while they were uh, in the womb with their mothers. Uh, Some of these women were born addicted to drugs. Some of these women uh, grew up with incredible violence and incredible poverty. Uh, the, The strategies for living that they were surrounded by were regularly quite challenging and for many folks quite upsetting. And that was not my upbringing. I grew up in the happy suburbs. I, you know, my biggest concern was where are we going to play street hockey today? Are we going to play street hockey in front of my house or my friend's house? That's like my biggest concern as a kid. That's, that's a pretty great upbringing. And I always knew, always knew that I would always have a roof over my head and food in my belly. That psychological safety was absolutely game-changing for me. Around the time that I worked at the prison, I read Warren Buffett's biography. It's called Snowball. And in his biography, he he talks about how he won the ovarian lottery. It's kind of a bit of a funny term. What he means by the ovarian lottery is that his sisters grew up in the same household as him. He says they're just as intelligent as him. His sisters uh, had the same education as him. All else was equal. Yet Warren is a billionaire and his sisters are not. Now, part of that is going to be interests. But part of that is also what's available to a woman in the 1950s, 60s, 70s compared to what was available to a man. So, you know, Warren looks at how he was born in a capitalist society as a white man in a you know, upper middle class family. His family had a few dollars. His dad was, I believe, a congressman. And there were just certain comforts and advantages that he had from the get-go. When I was getting my degree, we studied in sociology class the idea of middle-class guilt. For a while, I did feel middle-class guilt. But then one day it hit me. Holy smokes, if I was the person who was disadvantaged, looking up at someone like me in my position with all of my advantages... And I looked up and I saw, wow, this person has an education. Wow, this person has you know, a safe and loving family. Wow, this person has the benefit of access to education. 
the access to mentors, access to healthy food. I'd be saying that person who's got it better than me had better not waste what it is that they have been gifted. They did not earn that. They had better make the most of it. And as soon as I thought that way, I realized, wow, I am that person. And had I not worked in the prison, I may not have seen in such stark contrast just how many gifts I had been given. I don't want to squander that. I am standing on the shoulder of parents who worked extremely hard to give me what they gave me. I, I am standing on the shoulder of grandparents who you know, were a part of the greatest generation and uh, you know, their parents fought in the world wars. And, you know, their grandparents were dealing with incredibly rugged conditions to immigrate into Canada and to homestead in west, the west of Canada, where it was barren land. No running water, no electricity. In the, you know, mid to mid-1800s, it's like Canada wasn't even a country, and here they are breaking land with barely any equipment. I'm standing on those shoulders. And let me tell you, not as a matter of obligation, but as a, as a matter of reverence for the vision and the passion and the steely determinedness of those who've gone before me, I am making good on everything that they've given me. That is why I want to do everything I can to fulfill on my potential in this lifetime. Now, I got to make sure that I don't self-destruct along the way. And that's exactly my message to you today. How can you take periodization? How can you take alternating work and rest periods? How can you appreciate 1% progress per day? Kaizen, not needing to like have a magic pill all at once. What would have to be true for you to commit to the path that you're on for the next 10 to 20 years. And if you couldn't possibly imagine yourself making the commitment that you're, you've got right now for the next 10 to 20 years, what needs to change about your path that you could? What is it that uh, you need to um, accept? Where do you need to relax standards by like 5% so you can uh, actually enjoy a little bit of a little bit of slack in the line, a little bit of relaxing just a little bit so you can perform at an even higher level. These are my questions to you today. My name is Tim Francis. You can follow me every, anywhere on social. My handle across the board doesn't matter whether it's Facebook, LinkedIn, um, uh, Instagram, or anywhere else is Real Tim Francis. And my website is realtimfrancis.com cheering you on today and every single day. Thank you.